Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Last week, being NADOC week, we heard a message from Vicki Cosgrove about unity. And we know that unity is something which is really important to God because it's a theme which comes up again and again and again right through Scripture. In fact, Jesus' last prayer in John chapter 17 expresses this burning desire that he has on his heart for his followers to be unified, to be one as he and the Father are one. That's what he says. So we know that unity is really important to God. But recently I've been thinking if God really wanted his followers to be unified, why did he leave us the Bible? Because the Bible has been the basis for so much disunity in the church right throughout its history. People have argued over different verses, different chapters, different versions, what should be included in it, uh, what should be disregarded from it, and all of those things. There has been no end of disunity around the Bible. And so I think, well, you know, know, God might have helped us out by... um, by giving us something which was a little bit more cut and dry or something. But today I'm going to be preaching about adoration, about praying prayers of adoration. And when we look at disunity, the issue, in fact, is not the Bible. It's actually our hearts and whether or not we have a heart towards of adoration towards God. So I'm going to demonstrate this by um, reading a prayer from the Old Testament. So it's from the book of First Chronicles, which, which, which chronicles uh, the, some of the major kingdoms in the history of ancient Israel. And in chapter 16, King David, he gives this prayer for the whole nation to hear. And uh, just as a bit of context, David has just been appointed king at this point, and it's come off the back of great disunity in the nation. There's been great division because there's some people who are followers of David and there's been other people who were followers of King Saul who's dead by this point. Um, But there's also uh, impurity in the land because there's the lingering presence of of other pagan nations that were in Israel before um, the Hebrews uh, reclaimed the land and, uh, and they have the presence of their false gods and their idols that are all throughout the land creating this problem of impurity. So you've got disunity, you've got impurity, but then you've also just got a general coldness in, in people's zeal for God. They've sort of in the middle of all of the turmoil, they've kind of uh, lost that passion for God. And to David, for David, um, and I suppose for, for priests, this is signified most greatly by their neglect of the Ark of the Covenant, which is this um, box in which uh, God's presence is, is said to dwell. And so David's built a tent in Jerusalem and he's coordinated for the whole assembly of Israel to gather so that the Ark of the Covenant can be brought and placed in this tent in Jerusalem uh, and that he can start his reign that way. And he begins with this prayer, which I'm just going to read you some, some of now, starting in verse 8. It says, Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him. Yes, sing his praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exult in his holy name. Rejoice, you who worship the Lord. Search for the Lord and for his strength. Continually seek him. Remember the wonders he has performed, 
his miracles and the rulings he has given. You children of his servant Israel, you descendants of Jacob, his chosen ones. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things that he does. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all other gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honour and majesty surround him. Strength and joy fill his dwelling. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Cry out, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from among the nations so we can thank your holy name and rejoice and praise you. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. An incredible prayer that David has composed there. This amazing prayer of adoration. Now, this is a story from the Old Testament thousands and thousands of years ago in Israel's history. And so you might be thinking, well, what's the relevant of, relevance of it to us now? But the Old Testament is actually this incredible grand narrative. It's, it's an incredibly, incredible, incredible story to read through, and, it, and it's incredibly relevant because it's a spiritual drama which plays out in the hearts. It, it reflects a drama which plays out in the hearts and lives of, of everyone who believes today. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So we can actually see from this these stories um, models which are relevant to our lives. And I think what we see from this passage, which I've just read to us, is that when we experience disunity and impurity, like the Israelites were in that time, and when our love for God has gone cold, like it had in Israel, that the answer to these problems lies in adoration, in praying adoration towards God. David begins his reign over Israel with this massive prayer of adoration. And even Jesus knew to begin prayer with adoration. When he gives us the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels, it begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's not just a coincidence. It's not that he could have just put it anywhere, but it happened to be at the beginning. It begins with adoration because when our prayers don't begin with adoration, they run the risk of not really being prayers at all or not prayers to God, prayers to ourselves or prayers to, to false gods. And that's why we need to begin with adoration. We need to begin our prayers with adoration. We need to begin our ministry with adoration. We need to begin every day with adoration towards God. And what we're going to see from this passage, I'm just going to pick out three things. So there's a lot more in it that I could pick out, but just for today, I'm going to pick out three things that adoration produces. The first is ministry, the second is purity, and the third is unity. So we're going to look at ministry, purity, and unity, and then we'll be done. Okay, so ministry. Now, when we think of ministry uh, as Christians, we tend to think of um, us serving in church, uh, doing some sort of, uh, having some sort of role or some sort of way in which we volunteer. But it actually says in verse 39 of this of, of 1 Chronicles 16 that David has instructed the priests to minister to God, 
not to other people, but actually to minister to God, which is, I think, often a concept that we don't think about uh, very often. Ministering to God. What does it mean to minister to God? Well, to minister really just means to, to serve, to serve somebody, to meet their needs. So when we minister to God with adoration, we're actually starting to serve him. We have to think of adoration as our service towards God, as, as meeting his needs in a sense. Now, this idea of God having needs can be a little bit awkward. And I know for me, uh, this has been a great stumbling block in the past, this idea that God would actually demand or desire our praise and our adoration. But the Bible is certainly clear on that point. So why doesn't that make God some kind of maniacal egotist that just wants our praise all the time? I mean, it, it, seems, <laughs> it seems kind of insecure. Now, this hasn't just been a stumbling block for me. This has been a stumbling block for lots of people. And one person was the writer C.S. Lewis, who um, you might remember from the Chronicles of Narnia series, who um, started out uh, as an atheist and eventually he converted to faith. The Psalms was one of the, the Psalms, which is, um, which is the whole collection of David's um, prayers and, and others, but they're, they're songs basically, and many of them of adoration. This was one of the biggest stumbling blocks for, for Lewis. The constant demand from God to praise him seemed to Lewis to picture God as, and this is a craving, uh, this is a quote, sorry, <laughs> as craving for our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. That's how he perceived God. But what he came to see is that when we think of God's desire for adoration as just like a vain woman who's craving compliments, it's just reflective of the fact that we have a distant understanding of God, like he's some kind of, some sort of distant despot dictator up there who, who has nothing really to do with our lives on a personal level but, but um, demands our praise of him. And, of course, we've seen leaders like that um, through history and, and even now we can see them around the world. And, um, and they're not people that that we really would, would want to worship um, of our own accord. So how is this any different? Well, God's relationship that he wants to have with us is actually not as a distant despot. It's actually a close, intimate relationship. His desire for adoration is not reflective of, of his neediness or um, of some, some uh, fragile ego, but it's of... It's reflective of his desire for a love relationship with us. And if you think about it, any love relationship is going to go two ways. It's not just one-sided. If it's one-sided, what, what kind of a love relationship is that? It's, it's hardly love. What Lewis saw is that this, this um, call to praise or to adore is not something that is, which is reserved just for God. It's something that human beings do in, in, in all areas of life. He says that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Okay, so if you think if you've enjoyed a really good meal, you go, mmm, that was delicious, or you go, my compliments to the chef. Um, not because you have to, but just because out of your enjoyment, it just takes it that much further um, by getting to vocalise your enjoyment of it. And our praise towards God, our adoration should be the same thing. It's like it's just an extension. It's not because we have to. It shouldn't be coming out of a place of labour or obligation, but it should be a bursting forth, which is a consummation of our enjoyment of him. You think that 
When you pour out love upon a lover, if you're in a romantic relationship, that pouring out of love benefits both relationships. You do it because you want to do it. If you said, oh, I'm just doing this because this is what I have to do, well, then that would spoil the whole thing. It's actually you do it because, it, it, because you desire to do it. And when God demands or desires adoration from us, it's because he knows that when we pour out genuine adoration towards him, it's going to be the thing that most benefits us because it will bring us the most enjoyment because it's the consummation of that complete worship of who God is. John Piper, um, the American writer and preacher, puts it this way. He says, the reason that God seeks our praise is not because he won't be fully God until he gets it, but that we won't be happy until we give it. This is not arrogance. This is grace. This is not egomania. This is love. But you see, the thing is, is that many of us don't really want that sort of intimate relationship with God. We actually want the distant relationship where God is sort of somewhere out there. He's not, he's not close, but he's just close enough to be able to hear uh, us asking him for things and to give us what we want. And so our relationship with God can often be reflective of Veruca Salt's relationship with her father. If you've um, read the story, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, she's this indulged girl who her father is constantly trying to give her everything that she asks for. But do they have a loving relationship? No, we see it in the story that she's trying to get her um, dad to find the golden ticket to get into Wonka's factory. Um, and so he's got all of his workers opening every chocolate bar to try and find the golden ticket. They still haven't found it. And so Veruca Salt doesn't say, oh, thanks, Dad, for trying. She says, you're a rotten, mean father. You never give me anything I want, and I won't go to school until I have it. And so often that can be our attitude towards God. We just think that he's merely meant to be there just to serve our needs, not us to pour out love to him, of course, just to meet our needs, and that when he doesn't meet our needs the way that we think they should be met, then we despise him. But that's not what David is advocating for in this prayer. He says in verse 8, Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know about what he has done. We need to take a moment to thank God for what he has done, for the things that he's done in our own lives individually, but also for the things that we know that he's done collectively for all of us by granting us life, by granting us grace and um, salvation and calling us into that relationship with him. Verse 9, it goes on, it says, sing to him. Yes, sing his praises. We don't just sing songs because that's what you do when you're religious. Actually, when we sing, we're meant to first and foremost be singing them just to him. And that's why we start with this idea of ministry, because if we're going into acts of adoration because we have some sort of secret agenda, something that we want to get out of it, then it's not real adoration. It's just flattery. It's just us being sycophantic. And God's not looking for sycophants. He's looking for people who just genuinely praise him for who he is, God. So we're going to just have a song now, a song from Stu. And uh, as we, you can sing along or you can listen to the music, but as we do, I want you just to think of yourself as ministering to God singing to him, thanking him for what he has done and letting yourself go deeper into that intimate relationship. The second thing that prayers of adoration produces is purity. Now, when we hear the word purity, we often think of puritanism or just conservatism and we imagine these sort of like Sandra D, uh, quaint kind of boring personalities. And I think often it doesn't seem very attractive. 
But the way that purity is expressed in the Bible isn't boring or bland. It's actually about being wholehearted before God. It says in uh, verse 25 and 26 of this prayer, it says, Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all other gods. The gods of other nations are mere idols, but the Lord made the heavens. This call for purity is actually really about us getting rid of any of the other idols or gods which are on on our hearts so that our hearts can be on fire for God. It's like gold which doesn't have any blemishes in it. You see, when our hearts have other, you might think I don't have other gods, but really it's, it's when your heart is being pulled by anything other than God. If God is just pulling your heart forward through life, then, that's, then, then your heart is pure. But when your heart is impure, you have other things which are pulling your heart in all sorts of different directions. And so actually it's not, it's not passionate at all. It's really just, it's almost like a stalemate, you know. It's kind of like someone who starts a million degrees at university and keeps changing degree but never finishes one. It's like you never come to any point of, of, of completion and, and, and so it's just a sort of eternal stalemate. Have you ever tried hanging out with people, but they sit on their phones the whole time and you try telling them some kind of great anecdote or some sort of good story or a good joke or something like that and you kind of get to the end of it when you're expecting them to be impressed by the story and they're like, wait, what? what? Hang on. Who, sorry. I don't, wait, who was it? Where were you? Oh, and, and you, you sort of go, oh, well, I, I have... And then the whole moment is, is wasted because they're not really with you. They're kind of semi with you, but they're not really with you. And they're kind of not even really with their phones either. So they're just kind of like in this no man's land. And you kind of think it would be better if you just, you know, went with your phone or put your phone away and, and, and you know, were with me. And I think sometimes that's what we can be like before God when we have idols in our heart. It's like we're before him, but we're not really fully with him. And so in that way, we... We, we kind of get bits of it, but we miss out on the fullness of God. Impure hearts are just simply hearts which are divided. They're not purely in one direction. They're going off in different ways. Until our hearts are purely on God, we'll miss out on the fullness of him which is on offer. Okay, so how do we, how do we get that purity back? How do, we, how do we get into that place where our hearts get rid of all of the distractions, all the other gods, all the other idols, and come back just to being fully on him. Well, we do it through prayers of adoration. You see, without the deliberate act, and that's why we have to be deliberate about it, not just kind of when we feel about it. We need to deliberately come back every day, every prayer time, every morning. We need to come back to praying prayers of adoration towards God, regardless of our feelings, because otherwise our hearts are wont to pour their affections upon other things, they, they just will pour them on anything. It's hard to do that. They want to find something to attach themselves to. And so before long, our life is suddenly governed by these false gods. And those gods are going to lead us astray. They lead us into all sorts of different directions, into the, the ever-darkening condition of human sin. So when we pray prayers of adoration, that's the moment for us to bring our hearts purely back on to God. Charlotte Bronte, the uh, English novelist from the 19th century understood this. In her story, Jane Eyre, there's this moment where Jane, the lead character, is out um, in the moors and she's destitute and homeless and um, she's uh, separated from 
the love of her life, Mr. Rochester, and she has this moment where she's out in the middle of a field at night and she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. She doesn't know what's going to happen to Mr. Rochester. It's her hour of greatest need. But then she lies down in a crag and she looks up at the sky and it says this. Jane says, I had risen to my knees to pray for Mr. Rochester. Looking up, I, with tear-dimmed eyes, saw the Milky Way. Remembering what it was, what countless systems there swept space like a soft trace of light, I felt the might and strength of God. Sure was I of his efficiency to save what he had made. Convinced I grew that neither earth should perish nor one of the souls it treasured. I turned my prayer to thanksgiving. The source of life was also the saviour of spirits. Mr. Rochester was safe. He was God's and by God he would be guarded. You see, in that moment of adoration, suddenly all our prayers, all our, our needs, they, they, they're suddenly contextualised like they were for Charlotte in that moment when she saw the heavens before her and realised that they were all the, the workings of, of God. She realised if, if God could do all that, how much more would he be able to take care of, of me and of, of the people that I love? When we feel our need, and I know some of you have very, very real needs, when we feel those needs, those um, those concerns that we have for ourselves, for our loved ones, that is the moment to wrap our hearts around God as our ultimate satisfaction. You see, if we if we kind of go, okay, this is, I need this person or I need this situation or I need this answer, and you wrap our hearts around that and say, and God, would you kind of help make that happen, then God isn't really being your God in that moment. That thing has become your God and you're just asking the Lord, you're asking Jesus to be your butler to help get what you really want, what you really desire. And so in that way, it's actually that thing which has become your God. It's no longer Jesus. That's why we need to have these prayers of adoration where we wrap our hearts around Jesus and through that we watch everything else fall into place. The last thing that we're going to talk about which prayers of adoration produce is unity. Now, if as we just saw, you know, it's, it's hard for our own hearts to even stay unified. So how much harder is it for different humans to stay unified? And we know that to be the case. So how am I supposed to stay unified with fellow believers? Now, if you follow any Christian, let's say that there's some kind of Christian that you admire. If you follow them for long enough and you get to know their work intimately enough, I promise you, you will find something that they believe that you disagree with. There's always going to be something that you disagree with. Disunity around, around different opinions is almost entirely inevitable. But we can see how that disunity can actually become so, so fierce that it really starts to tear communities and starts to tear the church apart. In America, we can see this happening at the moment in, in, in a very visceral way. A recent example of this was when the president stood out at um, the front of a church in Washington, D.C., holding up a Bible. Most of you will have seen that story. Now, I've seen prominent Christians in the States talk about that as an incredibly offensive moment, suggesting that it would be nice if he would actually open the Bible and read it uh, and, and that it really is um, an embarrassment um, towards, towards the word and towards the Christian faith. But then there's also other prominent Christians who see that as a fantastic triumph, a moment where, um, where Christianity is being upheld. 
Okay, so who's right? Which one of those two camps is right? And I know that even if the people watching this right now, there's going to be people who sit on either side of that particular debate. And when I ask the question, who's right, you're going to be thinking, well, we are. Well, okay, but then, but then how, do we, how do we get unity? Okay, if, if unity is the thing that, that God seeks, and we know that it is, and we saw that last week from, from Vicky's message, then how do we get that unity? And what this prayer from David suggests to us is that unity is not going to come when everyone subscribes to one political opinion or another. That's not where unity is going to come from. It says in verse 35, cry out. This is David's urge to Israel. Cry out, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from among the nations so we can thank your holy name and rejoice and praise you. The answer to disunity does not lie in the power or the wisdom of nations. The answer to disunity will come when Christians gather to adore God. Where there's disunity in the church, Christians have ceased adoring God above all and have started to look at themselves. They've started to look at their own problems. They've started to look at their own solutions and they've stopped adoring God above all. That's why we need to begin everything with worship. That's why we begin every Sunday with worship. That's why our prayers should begin with praise. We need to begin with adoration so that we just come together and say, look, we don't have the answers to all of this disunity, to all of these problems. That's why we need to cry out, save us, O God, of our salvation. Gather and rescue us from the, among the nations. It's this beautiful image of God's people being gathered together. You know, recently I feel like in a strange way, coronavirus has brought about a bit of unity amongst fellow men because it's given us something to kind of talk about with people that we don't even know. And so you, you, you can talk to anyone about it. But it's kind of sad that it's taken a pandemic for us to have something to, to feel unified with our fellow Australian about. Um, the image here is actually for God's people to be unified over the common adoration of him. It says in verses 28 to 30, O nations of the world, recognise the Lord. Recognise that the Lord is glorious and strong. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his presence. Worship the Lord in all his splendour. Let all the earth tremble before him. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you are our God. We are sorry that we have so often neglected you to follow our own paths. We repent of our disunity, recognising how badly it betrays your heart of love and how poorly it reflects you to the world. Thank you, Lord, for your never-ending mercy and grace. As your followers, we gather ourselves around you once again. Speak and we will listen. Where you go, we will follow. In you, there is renewal, there are solutions, and there is life eternal. Hallelujah to the God of ages past, who was, who is, and who is to come. To you be the glory, O God, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>